You're listening to the FMC podcast. Thanks for tuning in. Okay, we're rolling. Welcome to the FMC podcast. I'm Matt Spazali. And I'm Jonathan Keel. We're happy to have you with us again. Um, we'll start off uh, with a prayer in the name of the Father, Father Son, and the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen. Lord Jesus, we uh, ask you to uh, be here with us. We recognize you, and acknowledge your presence here. Guide our conversation. Mm-hmm. Be in in our words. Be in our hearts and our minds uh, as we discuss you, as we discuss the the will of your Father that all men and women and children would be saved. Um, that we just... Um, Give us this sense of your mercy, Lord. Give us an understanding of your justice and mercy. Mm. Praise you, Lord. We pray all of this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, Father Son, and Son, Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. So we're uh, we're back in the camper now. Uh, we got kicked out of the kicked out of the the kids ministry trailer um and but actually since the last time we've been in this this camper it's been cleaned up yeah and uh, and floor's fixed no more <laughs> yeah there's no more big hole, hole in the ground in the floor and praise you lord it is not blazing hot outside today's like the first yeah, day of fall yeah it just got cold this morning uh for for us here in louisiana so um, I don't know. That always makes me feel good. Um, and so today we are we're talking about a document. We're going to talk about a document by the International Theological Commission called, and the title of the document is "The Hope of Salvation." For infants who die without being baptized. And just so you know, you could find this document if, if at the end of this you're interested in looking at it. Um, you could find it under the Congregation uh, for the Doctrine of the Faith on the Vatican VA, Vatican.va website. If you go to the Roman Curia, you could then um, click on to the CDF or the Congregation for the Doctrine of the Faith. And then in a subsection, it'll have the International Theological Commission. Yeah. Um, and I guess, yeah, that's a good intro uh, to what this is, or, you know, who is the International Theological Commission? Well, it's a basically an advisory, um, a group of 30, is it 30 theologians? I think uh, 30 theologians um, who are basically appointed um, by the Pope to this theological commission and they are their reason for being is to advise the magisterium on theological issues um, they are not so their pronouncements are not official proclamations by the magisterium um, necessarily it's it's an advisement um but this one in particular i think should be seen to carry a good bit of weight uh 
for the proposition that it um, that it makes because um, one Cardinal Ratzinger was um, the head of this commission at the time at the time that it was that the so in 2004 at the time that this issue that this question uh, John Paul II approved so the popes yeah the, the popes approved the certain questions that the commission is going to talk mm-hmm, about mm-hmm. so Pope John Paul II approved this question um, Cardinal Ratzinger at that time in 2004 was the head of the CDF and therefore the International Theological Commission so um, then as Pope uh, in 2007 when this work was finished uh, by that point Cardinal Ratzinger had become Pope Benedict XVI at that time he approved this document for publication mm-hmm. okay. um, yeah. and again that can't be you know it's not he, he didn't include it in an encyclical he didn't pronounce it in that way or you know I don't think you I think he would say it's not an official endorsement but he certainly didn't didn't see enough wrong with it to suppress it in any way you know he so whatever that means he approved it for publication the the cardinal was it Lavada yeah, at that the, time the prefect at that point so Lavada uh, presents it to Benedict the 16th in 2007 and then Benedict the 16th approves it for publication and so we're going to talk about what what it says it was just important for me to understand where this document was coming from who and who the international theological commission was so i just wanted to do that little intro um why jonathan are we interested in this uh well I wanted to t- just kind of mention a, sh- a story of something that happened to us last year that made this issue uh, a-, a reality for us. Um, certainly in our past, we had, uh, between our first and second son, we had a miscarriage. And so this um, idea, although it, it was, it, I guess it could have been on my mind, really, I never questioned what was ha- going to happen to um, a baby uh, we just always assumed that God would be merciful and we'd see that baby in heaven uh, it's the way we always talk as Catholics and really even as Christians but last year we were living in Peru and um, we had uh, a lady we knew um, Teresita she was a really close friend of ours worked in our Ezekiel home ministry and was a, a chef uh cooked for the kids and just helped out and her son uh, and his wife had um, a child that um, they thought were going to was going to die and, and she survived and they called her Milagros which means miracle and um, five months into this beautiful young baby's life she got really sick and they brought her to the hospital in Tarapoto and um, she was the doctor said she's she's going to be fine go ahead and go home and they went home and that night her fever spiked again they brought her back and they said um this baby's going to die and um it was just within hours and so they were 
you know, um, they asked for prayers, and um, many of the girls, if not all of the girls on our missionary team uh, community, really, um, most of them at least, went to Terapoto, they were in Terapoto, and they went to this hospital, and they prayed over this baby, and they really felt like God was going to answer their prayers. Um, they, I remember them leaving, and um, them telling me just how... Um, how blessed they felt my wife was telling me how she really felt like the holy spirit was there and um one of the girls went to get the priest so that the priest could come and baptize the child um, who still hadn't been baptized and uh the priest wasn't able to make it the baby ended up dying and um there wasn't even a priest to do the funeral and so uh, my wife and I were sent to go and basically do um, a funeral of sorts. They have kind of a lay handbook. It's not a mass, of course, but it's uh, a, a memorial service that uh, was commonly done in, in Peru where you have so many um, people who pass away and there are no priests available to do any type of um, funeral or any clergy whatsoever. And so... Um, while we were there it was just very it was a very depressing very sad not only because of just the normal loss of um life which i felt when we lost our child but also uh just the sense of despair that you could feel um among those who were present just realizing that this baby was never baptized and i remember them trying to get my wife Teresa to baptize this dead um, infant and it was just one of the saddest things um, and of course we told them you know to hope in the Lord and that God is good and 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 also of course we couldn't promise them anything but the, the thinking about that um, in the context of missions and in the context of just abortion in general um the the issue came up again mm -hmm. um recently this year i went on a men's retreat and as we were sitting there at the men's retreat um i was feeling sad about um, the loss of my son ezekiel as, as occasionally happens uh when we now and again it will just kind of overwhelm me and um i remember talking with another missionary and um he was really striving to let me know you know how it was uh, i should I, I at least can be um could find comfort in the fact that of knowing that um my child is in heaven um with our lord and um and at, in in that i was feeling i would say some some frustration and i started thinking yeah i know that he's there but still feeling the pain of it all and it just dawned on me that um, you know, all of these babies who are aborted, if you talk to the average person, they will say, of course, all these babies are going into heaven. Um, and it dawned on me in this conversation, well, why aren't we, why aren't we happy then about these babies hmm. dying? Uh, you know, why don't we say, well, you know, uh, a million babies were aborted and that just made a million saints. And there's a number of reasons why, but one aspect of that was as I studied the church teaching um, and biblical the biblical record, you, this is really a gray area, and it's been something the church has um, struggled through for 
thousands of years, 2,000 plus years now mm-hmm. on what happens to these babies. Um, it's not as clear, although, of course, we want to make people feel good, so we're going to say, well, they're going straight to heaven. But when we actually look at the church teaching, before, the history of the teaching... Before we go there, I'm just yeah. jumping back to Peru. I'm curious, did... And we won't go too far down this, but right. did they not know? Did people not know they could have baptized the baby? Uh, yeah, I mean, they're, they definitely... Uh, the church definitely teaches that, but what you find so often in um, in mission and environment is most of these people, number one, they just don't... They don't know. They right. don't know. Their faith tends to be centered more on clergy than on our Lord. Um, yeah. And I'm, I'm not faulting really anybody in that, but I am saying that when these people receive the faith at whatever point, the way they receive the faith in a, in a, in a mainly illiterate culture is it's received through liturgy rather than mm. through the written word. And so when the liturgy is there, then the faith is there. But when, as so often now we're seeing... There's no liturgy. Um, what we're seeing is that the faith as well tends to be uh, very right. muted, if not uh, lacking altogether. And so in this particular case, um, you know, they they wouldn't have... It, it really... Wouldn't even though they even had them. a name for this, um, many of them wouldn't dare do that right. I mean that's really the way they talk about it I've actually even met many who won't even read the Bible without clergy present because they're afraid that they might um, encounter that they might read something that would lead them astray Wow! and so yeah. that's just something a reality that you deal with not only in Peru we saw it in Mexico and um, I'm sure that it exists in other places yeah. as okay. well yeah I just wanted I was curious um so, yeah, um, sorry. The yeah, this is definitely uh, an issue that, as we look at it, and as this commission goes back all the way to to the beginning of of Christianity, and looking at yeah, it's it's really interesting uh-huh. because in the actual first paragraph, it says that this this topic. Uh, the possibility of salvation for non-baptized infants is urgent. It actually uses the word urgent because of the contemporary context of cultural relativism and religious pluralism, which literally just means that people, because of just uh, the society that today we are raised in, there's no sense of this urgent need to baptized babies yeah oftentimes it's put off and really that's not even a new thing we will discover that in the early church baptism was put off for decades i think of saint augustine so many saints who uh were for other for other reasons they put off um baptism and um so you have this urgency today though when we think of and it comes out later in, in the text but abortion um when we think of all of these um, babies who are bap- who are, who have died uh, without being baptized, the question certainly comes up: What's happened to them? They haven't been baptized. They don't have free will. 
Um, and usually what we say is just, well, God will save them because how could he not do that? And um, it's not what we discover is that it's, it's not quite that simple. Uh, and also that, and I thought this was really a beautiful reflection in this text, is that God is not principally the subject or the object of theology but rather the subject of theology. And, and this is the idea that when we think of um, theology, which literally means the study of God, there are two ways of looking at it. One is we study about God. So we kind of look at maybe how people have looked at God or maybe, you know, what God is, the idea of a God. But what this document points out is that for Christians, principally theology is a study uh, rather than of what God is, but rather it's a study of what God has revealed. In other words, God as the subject of the study. God in the sense of God providing what we study. We don't actually ever study um, God from the sense of putting him on a microscope, but rather we study the things God has revealed about himself. And mm -hmm. he's the teacher right. <laughs> of, and, and, of and this that's, class. And that's really important because the magisterium is rather the servant of revelation rather than somehow being able to just, well, I'd really like it to be this way. And so let's let's right. make it look like this. And that's yeah, and then it, that's a an issue that um, they address in here. Uh, you know, I imagine there are a lot of well, certainly a lot of people who would want the church to come out and say a certain thing, um, but they emphatically, you know, the, so these theologians emphatically say Revelation does not tell us where these babies are we we it's a it's an uncertain point and they so they don't um i mean i think they kind of go they go pretty far in saying where they think they are not but revelation doesn't give us what god has revealed through scripture and the church doesn't give us a certainty about this um, and there, uh, I think that that rings of of truth and honesty. You know, yeah. when someone says, basically, who says, "I don't know," um, but it's not simply an "I don't know." So the right, no, no, it's, no, right. I, 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 but yeah. I think it's it's important that what the document does try to do is say to us: number one. That revelation, these are, I'm just going to a few quotes here. Revelation does not communicate, this is in section 32. Revelation does not communicate directly right. in an explicit fashion knowledge of God's plan for unbaptized children, but it enlightens the church regarding the principles of faith that just guide her thought and practice. Yeah. So the first thing is really. Um, infant baptism is not that important to the writers of uh, the New Testament. Um, and the reason for that, and this comes out as well in the doctrine, is that 
the church was just beginning, and so you didn't have really a community of faith that was, we're talking about generations. This is first generation, so the the church is being built on mainly adults, and, we, and although we do see context for infant baptism um, in the book of Acts, for example, where whole households are baptized, like the household of Cornelius um, and, and some other places, even infant baptism in general is not something that uh, is really fleshed out a whole lot um, explicitly in uh, in the context of the New Testament because you really didn't have a, um, a, a church. You're talking about the very first generation of the church, so this wasn't really an issue for them um, as much as it would be once you have generations established and what do you do with your children who are now being raised in the faith that really wasn't uh, much of an issue in, right. the, in the New Testament author's minds. But I think one thing that's important, and I would like to just mention these um, in our context, is the commission proposes that there is a hierarchy of truths. Mm-hmm. Okay, And this, this idea of a hierarchy of truths I, I really found interesting is actually taken from a Vatican II document called Unitatis Redintegratio. Uh, which is actually the decree on ecumenism, section 11. It talks about hierarchy of truths. And in this particular context, the hierarchy of truths could be set out as, number one, the idea that of a universal salvific will of God. And it was the first time I had heard this title, but it's the idea that God wants everyone to be saved. And... The verse that comes up, there's going to be two verses that you could say are kind of these polar opposites, or not opposites, but certainly tug back and forth right. in church history. Great tension. For yeah, others. there's like an apparent tension. One is from 1 Timothy 2 4, which is this idea that God wants all to be saved. And so God's will is that all would be saved and how do we really understand that how can god will something uh, i'm not saying he can but it's it's just the question is how can god will something and it not happen um and then number two the they call it the unicity and insuperability of the mediation of christ which basically just means all of us are saved through jesus christ the one mediator between god and man So, when we talk about salvation, everyone, everywhere, at all times, if they are saved, they are saved through Jesus Christ. Uh, However, what that means has been, is is much much, um, harder to um, pin down than it might seem. And then the idea that of the need of the church and sacraments for salvation, so... This goes back to the idea, um, certainly as early as St. Cyprian um, in the second century, that there is no salvation outside of the church. Mm-hmm. So what does that mean? Also that to be saved, one must be baptized. And also that to be saved, according to Jesus, one must partake of his flesh to um, receive the Eucharist. 
and what all that how all that fits in and then finally um the reality of original sin that all of us and this is kind of goes to the verse that comes up so often is romans 5 12 with this idea that um all of us have um been born into adam you might say and um and this goes back to this idea that um we have these biblical doctrines so god wills to save all people but we're all sinners born in sin destined to death we need baptism and the eucharist that's administered by the church to be saved and all of us are saved through jesus the savior of all humanity and so it's there's this there's an apparent tension between this idea of God wants everyone to be saved, but we all need to be baptized. How does this all fit in? Uh, it, it's actually right. really challenging. Yeah, it's very in that it's, sense. it's beautiful, yeah. but challenging. And I think um, we were <laughs> we were talking before the podcast of like how do we even approach this? Uh, and and we don't have time to hit every point I would say for those of you who are interested like you can go you can find it um, online and it's I, it's fascinating it's not um, well yeah and I guess you can <laughs> determine for yourself how challenging the reading is I, I think it's it's put together pretty clear, but the issues that it's discussing are some difficult and, I think this is what's interesting, like foundational issues for all of our faith. So it may seem, you know, in a sense, like a very narrow question, like, okay, this little section of people. Now, the commission addresses that as well, saying the reason we're, one of the reasons we're talking about it is because it's not a very small group of people anymore right um as the world has grown and there are more and more people who are unbaptized um more and more infants and more and more babies aborted this is a much bigger issue um however it can still seem peripheral because these are talking about little children that we've never met um and but when you dig into it um it it just calls it pulls in the very foundations of our faith and what it means what did Jesus do you know mm-hmm. what what is what did he do how do we relate to that um, and actually I, I was just looking at the first page another thing that this document addresses is limbo um, yeah. which yeah. is something you don't hear much about in the church these days but people uh, of a a little older generation pre-Vatican II would have felt like that was an official teaching of the church that unbaptized babies who themselves can commit no personal sins Mm -hmm. would go to limbo uh, which is was some whether whether it was said this way or not is kind of like a third place heaven right, right. 
heaven and hell and limbo. Um, and what this... So this document actually kind of starts with limbo and saying that's a traditional teaching, but it's not... It was never... Um, and, it, and actually it remains a possible theological hypothesis. They're not saying that it's completely out of the realm of debate. Um, but they're also saying that it's not... This is not an infallible doctrine of the church. It's not... Um, it's, it's a hypothesis that was traditionally proposed to deal with this problem. And... Um, really, the, the, it's the conclusion of... Uh, I guess the conclusion of this commission that limbo is not a satisfactory answer yeah, for this. Yeah, we definitely receive, um, definitely towards the end of this document, you, you, they talk, I would say, um, you don't really have uh, a good view of the, or you have a, a lot of the problems with limbo mentioned. I mean, number one, it's just simply that it's not mentioned in Holy Writ. Um, right. Another I, another problem that it talks about in section 90, which it calls a major weakness, is that the traditional view of limbo really has no relationship to Jesus Christ. Right. It has no Christocentricity, and which is like a really key thing, is that um, how it, 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 it just seems to have... Um, the, the traditional view is that these babies would just live in natural happiness apart from God's grace. Um, and yet, as the document points out, that that's really not a reality that we know because from the moment of our conception, we all, including babies, receive God's grace upon grace. And so, it, it really, there are a number of problems within how how would that grace be removed and that child be placed in a state of no grace? What mm. would that even look right. like since we know of no condition where God's grace doesn't enter? Um, so there, there, are, it, it certainly leaves you with, um, and it, it talks about other issues of, you're left at the end with, um, I, I believe, a sense that um, there's not really much of a, um, a choice for limbo from the authors of, of this document right. um, although they don't come out and say I don't I think possibly because I mean they don't really have the authority to say um, that right. there's no limbo whatsoever uh, it's just simply that since it's never been proclaimed as a doctrine right um, you know that's kind of important but I, I wanted to actually just mention something Matt um, yeah because the last part of the document, which I think would be just due to our time constraints, would be interesting to focus on, but it's called Reasons for Hope. Yeah. And, <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, you have to go through a lot of the document to get to that yeah, point, and it really can do. kind of get depressing. And it's, you know, you get this idea, uh, um, in the first section, it does a great job of just talking about the history of this topic and how in the 
especially in the Western church, starting with Augustine, you have this definite view that babies were going to hell. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and so it's, it actually is, it's kind of frustrating reading and thinking, you know, how could they believe some of this just, uh, with just some of the feelings in the sense, literally of just, um, the way we sense things today. But then as you're reading it, you're thinking, you know, there are some, they're making some points that I don't know how exactly uh, would be the way to, you Counter. know, argue against yeah. this. And well, that's, yeah, I mean, because certainly Augustine was uh, no slouch and a, and a great saint, but in, as you know, we talked, it's like, oh man, it's disappointing to hear him his basically emphatic declaration that they are in hell. Right. You know, um, and you see his, his reason, you know, but he's folk, you know, he's focusing on one part of that tension that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, he's saying, Jesus said it, that if you're not baptized of water and the spirit, you cannot enter into the kingdom and so we are faced with that but it's only it's really only looking at one right part of the of of revelation i mean that's it's it's focusing on only a part of the revelation that we've received from god right and i think you know what's interesting is uh, and this came out and with one of the missionaries kent um, had one of the new missionaries in my class had mentioned, you know, well, what about the holy innocents? These yeah. um, babies who died certainly weren't baptized, and yet they've been proclaimed saints of the church. And that's actually taken up in this document as well as an example of Unbaptized. how God is not constricted or, uh, you know, we would say God is not bound to the sacraments. And, and this is just an ordinary um, teaching of the church is that, you know, God is not um, somehow stuck on, well, if, uh, if, if you were born in an area and, you know, there's no more water in that area, oh, everyone's going to hell. Uh, you're all just gonna, right. you know, you'd have nothing to drink. You're gonna die soon, and no way to baptize. I mean, the the idea is that we then have a baptism of desire. Um, you know, that's that's been a development of doctrine. Uh, we have a baptism of blood. Uh, we have even in the case of our blessed mother, where she was freed of original mm -hmm. sin without baptism at all uh but but so, right yeah thinking forward god like applying the merits of christ's death before it even happened so god is not bound but i think you know starting in 74 but we I, have I, or, oh, let me yeah. that's a i think maybe for me the central point or the central point of this whole Argument and and reasons for there a reason for hope is that um, God is not constrained by the sacraments they they are for us but to 
um, and they are like definitively taught as the ordinary means of salvation and means of receiving grace but to think that God has his hands tied by the sacraments is as the commission says an unnecessarily restrictive view of salvation and I mean we do see God deciding to restrict himself in in certain ways um but i think like in a in a situation such as this where we're talking about the most innocent like we couldn't we can't even conceive of more innocent people than these little children who have done nothing wrong ever in their entire lives um it's it seems to be the i can't even conceive of a more unjust thing than that they would be punished for mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. for this or that god would allow their eternal damnation on account of or I, I mean I understand the idea of original sin so we have to deal with that issue however I God is not as we say I mean Mary is a perfect example she was cleansed of original sin without baptism or anything I mean even in the womb before she could make any decisions or I mean and obviously that's mysterious but that's praise God what we're dealing with we're dealing right. with mysterious circumstances where we don't understand and to put to say it's open and shut either they're in hell or either or well I don't know where they are but they're not in heaven um is it's a again as they say an unnecessarily restrictive view of what god can do yeah and it's not even con- really not even consistent with other things that we know that he has done um i think that you know one of the the like oh sorry wait one more thing yeah, yeah. the holy innocence that just for people who aren't familiar with that term these are the children that were killed um by Herod. King Herod's men when he heard that Christ was born he had all you know all of the um children of a certain age or men uh sons or I think of a certain age killed and w- the church has celebrated the holy innocents and called them the holy innocents um who died basically in a in a persecution of Christ, um, but again, of of no will on their part, right, one right. way or the other. Right, and I think you know that's that's really a great um, segue into just some reflection on this topic that I'd love to share. Just some of the things that the document brings out. Again, the first thing is um, in seventy four, it talks about the primacy of charity. 
Mm-hmm. And um, and it, it, it continues into 80 that God is rich in mercy. So our, our foundation, and I think this is really important to me, is that our foundation is that God, from Ephesians 2, 4, is rich in mercy. It uses, often in this document, it uses liturgy as um, a, a way of forming. It's really beautiful, forming um, our our ourselves as Catholics. And mm-hmm. so, for example, in the liturgy we now have since the 19, early 70s, we actually have a service for, um, in the Roman Missal, for... Uh, Babies who are unbaptized, which is important because, as this document points out in section five, uh, we do not pray for those who are damned, um, and so yeah. there was, is. I, I I think I highlighted. I underlined a bunch of stuff. I highlighted one thing in the entire document, <laughs> and that was it. We do not pray for those who are damned, and that's just, yeah. That's it's it's just a beautiful again. Um, we have this idea that we start with that God is rich in mercy. And I think the reason it's important to start with that is because sometimes we as Christians, um, and, and this I'm just speaking across the board, Protestants, Catholics, um, Orthodox, just in Christian tradition in general, there is a temptation to start with damnation and mm. sin. So you're, you're, when mm. you think of the, the, the kerygma, which for us missionaries is just so important, we have these steps, um, at least here at FMC, and we we would speak of kind of like these these five steps in in the kerygma, and one is that God loves you. Um, the second is that there is a reality of sin that separates us from God, and the third is that uh, God sent His Son Jesus to bridge or to uh, to basically take up that. Um, that separation to bridge the separation between God and man and that number four is that we are called to solidarity with Christ um, and to be one with him through baptism and through receiving him and then number five is he gives us the Holy Spirit uh, and the church that we might uh, be part of his body and I mean that could be said in different ways but those are the basic steps and really I think it, as a missionary, it's important is where do I emphasize, what, what's the most emphasis? Do I place the emphasis most in step two? Do I really want everyone to know that they're really in danger, that sin is knocking at their door as, um, as the, the image for Cain, you know, um, that they are, you know, really moments away from damnation. Is that what the, the, the tone that we want to um, emphasize? Damnation and the risk of hell, the reality of sin, the weight of sin, the wages of sin is death. Um, it, it certainly could be and has been. I think of Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, maybe one of the most famous ones in America, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Um, but then there's also... If you're approaching it from a God who's rich in mercy, which sometimes, you know, I've heard it said, like, you're just kind of dumbing it down or you're kind of taking out the rough edges. But the reality is, is if our beginning, our base is that God is rich in mercy, that um, 
God it has in here section 80 this uh, a, a, a beautiful quote from the Byzantine liturgy that says you are a lover God is a lover of man um, if we kind of start with that point then we focus more on a more joyful proclamation of really the very first introduction which is our very first step of the kerygma which is that um, God is love and that God is mercy and what's fascinating to me and I, although it hasn't been proclaimed in one way or the other is that in Evangelii Gaudium the joy of the gospel when Francis uh, gives us an example of the kerygma he doesn't even have the section on he doesn't even present damnation at that initial point he just presents the focus on God as love and Jesus as walking with you that Jesus being for you and I think that's significant whether you agree with it or not mm -hmm. you know I think it is proclaiming something that we see in this document and that is that the direction that the Holy Spirit is leading the church right and that's not just the church as a, as a magisterium as a hierarchy but also the census fidelium which is this idea of just Christians throughout the world the basic feeling the basic sense of that we have is that God wants that God loves man that God loves these children wants them to be saved that God does not demand the impossible of them that God's power is not restricted to the sacraments that God can give the grace of baptism without actually giving the sacrament but the question rather is you know how does that work and one thing in the document it says time and time again is that the need for the sacraments are not is not absolute it belongs to what they say the second order salvation from the first order in an absolute sense what is needed is Jesus Jesus's sacrifice salvation comes only through Jesus through the name of Jesus that is an absolute necessity proclaimed by the church infallibly as dogma but what is not proclaimed is that the only way that can come to you is through one of the sacraments. In fact, we see many examples where that's not the case. Right. Um, I, th I think... Um, I can't... I, I was looking for it in the document. I can't remember exactly where they, they say this, but... Um, it's kind of a... a as you said even in Pope Francis's um, use of the kerygma, how he emphasizes a different aspect of it. Um, the When you look at what has been revealed to us, and I, I really feel like this commission has looked at it very objectively, when you have looked at look at it objectively, you see that there's a there can be a focus on sin um but there can also be a focus on love and mercy and not it, to say that um 
you get I mean you get the feeling that like Augustine and the f- people who followed that train of thought were folk I mean they were deciding to focus on sin and damnation and you can't really find a justification for that focus and now I'm not saying that I and I so the, then the question would be all right what's the justification for focusing on God's love and mercy um and it this is part of trusting the holy spirit and that we see in the development of in the documents of the church and this census fidelium that this document talks about that I'd never heard of before but or is that what it is? Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I think um, sort of the this the sense of the faithful um, is that we need to focus more on the love of God. That um, I think for our modern world, and again, you, you could disagree with this. I know even in my own life, um, it's been important for me to recognize sin in my life. But I think that was a... There was a critical time, like, when I was young, where that needed to be addressed. But a fo- as I focused more on that... Um, the more scared and miserable I was of being damned at every turn. You know, oh, I slip up here and then get in a car accident and I'm going to hell. Um, I'm not saying that that's not possible, but it's not... I found it in my own life not to be productive, um, not to be a fruitful thing that calls me out of myself to love others and serve others. And... That's a very important thing to look at. Any doctrine, what's the fruit of it in your life? And if it's not to say that it's not true, it's just a focus. And for me, focusing on the love of God, God's love and His mercy, helps me to be better. It just helps me to be a better person, to be a better Christian. Um, and so, in this context. Um, thinking of God as an angry, vengeful God. I mean, it's it's absurd to think of him even so vengeful in this circumstance, especially with people who've done nothing. And, and I mean, that's that's not that's not against church teaching. We, we they clearly have no personal sin. Um, and. To see God as vengeful in that situation just doesn't make me want to love God. You know what? I, I know that we can't completely understand everything that God does. Um, and he may do things that seem unjust to us here and now. Um, but in this situation, I don't... It's just not... It's not helpful for me to view God as um, a jerk and and constrained by this 
specific way of obtaining the grace to be wiped mm-hmm. clean of, mm-hmm. of original sin. It's, it's not the only way. Um, what's interesting, I, I mean, there's so many interesting things in this document, and we, we're kind of getting close to the time, and, and I feel like we've sort of been scattered around. Yeah, it's, Hopefully it's, we've just, maybe something we've said has piqued your interest in this topic mm-hmm, because the document mm-hmm. is fantastic and brings up just so many interesting things. Um, but you, you mentioned it earlier, I think, uh, where, you know, we have this statement that you need baptism for salvation. We also have the statement from Christ that you need, you know, if you do not eat my body and drink my blood, you have mm-hmm, no life mm-hmm, in you. Mm-hmm. Um, and this document says, if, if we actually recognize that you can be saved without doing the latter... Um, without eating the body and blood of Christ, then why are we restricting ourselves in the case of the former, where you say, well, no, but baptism you have to have. Yeah, and one of the things that, and again, the idea I think it's important to point out is it's not as though we're just arguing over some words and like, yeah. What what we're really trying to get to the what the church really is trying to get to the bottom of is well what does all this really mean? Um so it's it's not simply saying that well because we don't do it for the Eucharist we shouldn't do it for baptism but rather how does all of this work? How do we interpret this? And one of the things in section 99 it talks about it says Likewise, Jesus said, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you, John 6, 53, from which we understand the closely related need for participation in the Eucharist. However, just as we do not conclude from the latter words that someone who has not received the sacrament of the Eucharist cannot be saved, we should not deduce from the former words that someone who has not received the sacrament of baptism cannot be saved. Now, this is the key. What we should conclude is that no one is saved without some relation to baptism and Eucharist. And therefore, to the church, which is defined by these sacraments, all salvation has some relation to baptism, Eucharist, and the church. And this goes back to the idea that, again, we're all saved by becoming one with Christ. We were we became one with Adam. We received from Adam. We, we might say we live in solidarity when we're born with Adam. And we are called into solidarity with Christ. And we receive that through baptism, baptism where we're made part of his body. Where we're brought into the church, his bride and his body. And where we receive his flesh. But again... That is much more mysterious than sometimes the way uh, you know it's presented. It, it's it, yeah. and and that's where it gets kind of it's helpful to have these ref- deep reflections um, by the magisterium and church right. tradition. And I, I think you know this topic can be, or these discussions like this can be, um, can cause some cause anxiety for Catholics because we want to. Um, tr- have security in the teachings of the church and um, I think 
A lot of people would say, well, what? Then why are we even... What's the point of all this? Why Are you saying there's no need for baptism? There's no need for uh, the Eucharist? And that's certainly not what this document is saying. They're saying we absolutely have to have those. We just don't know... I guess we don't know... They're so powerful, we don't even know how powerful right, they are. Right. And in the... In the um, context of the of the Eucharist um, and our prayers for the whole of humanity contained in the liturgy, um, it may be it, it's not we don't know, but it may be that those prayers are what saves yeah these babies. That was honestly a beautiful section of the um, the document for me was. When it talks about praying the Our Father, and this has really <laughs> informed my prayer life just um, over the last uh, really few days since I, I started reading the doc, this uh, the document. But what it talks about is this idea that of the efficaciousness of the prayers of the church, and that you know we know that God's will, and this is really important, is that. We know God, this is in section 46, we know that God's will is that all would be saved. That God, it says in 1 Timothy 2, 3, 6, that Jesus gave his, a ran, his life as a ransom for all. Nobody is excluded from the salvific will. This is a will which is sincere on the part of God, but at times resisted by human beings. So, it certainly is possible to resist God's will. Although, you know, these babies couldn't do it. But this is the key at the end of 46. It says, Therefore, we need to pray to our Father in heaven that His will may be done on earth as it is in heaven. And what's beautiful is the thought that our prayer lives, our lives where we come to Jesus and ask that, uh, and ask through him that the will of the Father be done. We don't know the 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 power of that prayer. We know that it is the most powerful prayer uh, that we have. It's the prayer that was given us to us directly from Jesus. But but it's it's fascinating to just consider the fact that there may be people who never got to meet Jesus, but because of and through our prayers. At the very last moment of their lives, Jesus appears to them in a mysterious way uh, because that is his will that they might be saved and they have this encounter with Jesus. I mean, we, we just don't know, but it's just it's powerful to me for me to think as a missionary that it's not only through my um, proclaiming the the gospel and the charisma, but also through my praying that God's will be done. God, I think this is one thing I got out of this document that's really changed my way of thinking, is that God is so creative. <laughs> yeah. And and we sometimes don't think about just how creative God... Pope Francis actually talks about this a lot, but the creativity of God. He's so creative, and yet sometimes we don't... We like to restrict His creativity. But I wonder just how creatively God is saving us. You know, just uh, you, it's even every new idea we're thinking of, even in this document, these things, it's like God's so far beyond that. <laughs> 
And it's just, yeah. it's interesting to think about that. But I, I want to just mention one last thing. I, I thought this could be a great fruit for reflection for anyone listening to this. Is in section 84, after questioning whether infants who die without baptism necessarily die, whether there is any type of divine remedy, in 84 what's really cool is that it says, well, how might we imagine such a remedy? So it's just, hmm. here are some possible creative, you know, imaginings. These aren't yeah. church teaching or anything like that, but it, it gives three, and I think it's really interesting to reflection. So one, it says, broadly, we may discern in those infants who themselves suffer and die a saving conformity to Christ in his own death and a companionship with him. Christ himself on the cross bore the weight of all of humanity's sin and death, and all suffering and death thereafter is an engagement with Christ's own enemy, death, a participation in his own battle in the midst of which we can find him alongside us. His resurrection is the source of humanity's hope. In him alone is there abundant life and abundance, and the Holy Spirit offers to all a participation in his paschal mystery. And so, in, in, in one possible way, all of these infants who suffer abortions, who, who are aborted, in a certain way, they die in conformity to Christ, who died. They are fighting the same battle in innocence. It's just an interesting reflection. Yeah. Uh, another one is in 86. The second one it talks about is, some of the infants who suffer and die do so as victims of violence. So again, we think of abortion. And um, it talks about, in this sense, they are in solidarity with the holy innocents. They are, moreover, there in solidarity with Christ, who said, Truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. So again, this idea of solidarity looms large in this document. One, the solidarity in Adam, which is what we call original sin, and then the solidarity in Christ. And then the, the final one is just... In eighty-seven, it uh, is also yeah. that's. I think I feel like this one's my. Oh yeah, yeah. Go ahead. Favorite. Go ahead. I, I don't. Well, and I would just read the whole. Yeah, do it. Thing. Do it. it is also possible that God simply acts to give the gift of salvation to unbaptized infants by analogy with the gift of salvation given sacramentally to baptized infants. Uh, we may perhaps compare this to God's unmerited gift to Mary at her immaculate conception, by which he simply acted to give her in advance the grace of salvation in Christ. Um, I like I like that one as opposed, I mean, if I'm choosing between well, these three, <laughs> I like that one because it doesn't depend on anything, any circumstances of the death. You know, yeah, these yeah. others talk about suffering and dying as victims of violence. Well, what about those who don't? Or um, to say even... I mean, I, the first one, certainly death, a struggle with death, that, that would be universal for all of the, these. So that that one's good. I just... I, I don't know. I like that last one. Um, and part of the analogy... So they talk about an, an, the analogy between unbaptized infants and baptized infants is part of the unifying um, thread there is that neither groups 
have desired or done anything. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. The ba- even the baptized infant has not made any decision for or against Christ. Uh, it's the community. Yeah. Um, it's the yeah. community of the church that has made the decision. Right. So, you know, obviously we're dealing with with stuff we don't know. But what you could also say is that we can make the decision as well that unbaptized infants would be. I don't know. It's crazy. Seems crazy, but it's the and that, that you know that through our prayers, just as we baptize an infant through our prayers, um, that somehow our prayers could impart the same effect on another any other child who has by no fault of their own died um i think you know in the end and we're we're kind of running out of yeah. time here but i think in the end you know one if you do get a chance to read this document it's it's really is an amazing document and one of the I mean, there's so much in it we haven't been able to discuss i wish we had time <laughs> yeah. for um, one of those is just the idea of solidarity with Christ. And another one I just want to kind of end with, because I think it's where the end of the document ends on a, on a great footnote of hope. And although we can't, obviously, the document's very honest in the fact that it just says straight up in section 102, the second penultimate uh, um, paragraph, it says, There is much that simply has not been revealed to us. We live by faith and hope in the God of mercy and love who has been re- who he has been revealed to us in Christ and the spirit moves us to pray in constant thankfulness and joy. So, in other words, we know our savior, we know his will, we know who he is and it's based upon that that we have strong grounds it says for hope that God will save in um Infants, but I love this in section 91. It says, Where sin abounded, grace superabounded. And it goes on to say, This is one of the problems with limbo. It constrains this, that superabundance. It, quote, The free gift is not like the trespass. This is St. Paul. For if many died through one's trespass, many more have the grace of God and the free gift and the grace. Of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. As one man's trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one man's act of righteousness led to acquittal and life for all men. Where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. For as in Adam all die, so in also in Christ shall all be made alive. Scripture teaches, therefore it says, Scripture teaches of our sinful solidarity in Adam, yes, but it does so as a backdrop to teaching Mm -hmm. our salvific solidarity in Christ. The doctrine of original sin is, so to speak, the reverse side of the good news that Jesus is the Savior of all men, that all need salvation, that salvation is offered to all through Christ. This is the key here for me. In the past, many have stressed solidarity with Adam more than solidarity with Christ. We wish, I love this, we wish to stress 
that humanity's solidarity with Christ, or more properly, Christ's solidarity with all of humanity, must have priority over the solidarity of human beings with Adam, and that the question of the destiny of unbaptized infants who die must be addressed in that light. God's plan is to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth, Ephesians 1.10. There is a renewed appreciation of the great cosmic mystery of communion in Christ. This, in fact, is the fundamental context for our question. Praise God. Well, uh, Jonathan, I think you are probably about to be summoned to your your axe your study oh, that you're yeah. like almost right now. My uh, axe study. Good. Yeah. My wife, my beautiful wife, just came in to, uh, <laughs> to let me know. Um, so, I praise you, Lord. We thank you um, for this uh, time together, and um, we yes, we just we thank you for your love, for your mercy, for the wisdom um, of. The ages that we, we've been looking through here, um, the wisdom of your church, the teachings of your church, the, all of the people inspired by you to, to study you and yes, study the things that you've revealed to us. Um, we thank you for letting us know you even in, even in the smallest way, um, and we praise you. Praise you, Lord. Yes. Amen. Amen. In the name of the Father, Son, Holy, Holy Spirit. Spirit. Amen. Jonathan, get out of here. Uh, <laughs> Thank you all. We love yeah, you. Yeah, we love you. We love you, and we'll, uh, we'll talk to you soon. Bye. All right, go. Okay, so listen, this is what I'm We appreciate you listening to today's podcast. Please tune in again next week, and we look forward to seeing you. May God bless you.